0: luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style
1: hello my name's david runciman and this is past present future we have reached day five in our 12 days of christmas essay series Today, I'm talking about George Orwell's essay, The Lion and the Unicorn. Virginia Woolf died on the 28th of March, 1941. She committed suicide. She drowned in the River Ouse behind her house with her pockets full of stones. 1941 was a truly dreadful year. In some ways, it was the dark heart of the 20th century. It was the year when fascism was ascendant. Much of Europe was in its grip, under Hitler's control. Britain was fighting on, more or less alone, hoping for something to show up. Life was grim. The future was bleak. In the letter that Virginia Woolf wrote to her husband, Leonard, Leonard Woolf, her suicide note, she said, and I quote, I am going mad again. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times. And by those terrible times, she meant her earlier periods of, as she saw it, madness and what that had done to their marriage. But at the inquest into her death and in the press coverage afterwards, when that letter was released, it was either inadvertently or deliberately misrepresented and misquoted often in the newspapers to say not those terrible times, but these terrible times to imply that what Wolfe was saying in her suicide note was that she couldn't bear the state of the world now. She couldn't bear to live through 1941. Wasn't true. Wasn't what she was saying at all. But it provoked a furious reaction from some people, including members of the public who wrote into newspapers to complain that this privileged, educated woman was somehow opting out, had given up when ordinary people were having to suffer far worse and just get on with it, keeping calm and carrying on, stiff upper lip and all that, that ordinary English citizens were suffering more than Wolfe had ever suffered. And yet here she was saying she couldn't bear it. How were they meant to bear it? People complained. It was grotesquely unfair and also in some ways very English. Six weeks before Virginia Woolf died, George Orwell, on the 19th of February 1941, published what is perhaps his greatest essay, The Lion and the Unicorn. And it is also very much a product of 1941. And in its case, it is about those terrible times, living through the early part of that year. And it's hard to reconstruct it now. It's hard to imagine how the world looked in February 1941 because no one knew what was going to happen. A realistic appraisal of the future with Britain fighting on, but effectively fighting alone, was that it was incredibly dangerous and completely unknown. And the unknowns included the things that would have been known by the end of the war that completely changed its character and the direction of history. In February 1941, the Nazi-Soviet pact was still intact. By the summer... Hitler had broken it and committed his, one of his, fatal hubristic mistakes, invading the Soviet Union. By the end of the year, the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor and the United States had finally joined the war, and Britain was very much no longer alone. But in February 1941, none of that was known. And this essay is written in the light of that, including the real possibility of defeat. Perhaps not at the forefront of Orwell's mind, invasion although still that was a possibility, but certainly defeat. The other thing that's hard to reconstruct when thinking about Orwell in 1941 is that he wasn't yet the person that we now think of as George Orwell. That is, he hadn't become world famous, a world historical figure, one of the most important writers, one of the most important people of the 20th century. All of that was to happen after the war because of the two books that he wrote, Animal Farm and 1984, that made him world famous and for which he is now primarily known. In 1941, he was relatively well known in his own country. He was a successful novelist, not particularly successful, but successful enough. He was an extremely well regarded journalist. He was a jobbing book reviewer. He was an occasional contributor to the BBC. He was a man of letters. He was all of those things. He wasn't yet George Orwell. I mean, He wrote under that name. He was born Eric Blair. But he wasn't the person who was going to become an adjective, Orwellian. He was the person who wrote essays like The Lion and the Unicorn. And that's partly because Orwell's subject, the thing that allowed him to write the books that made him what he became, only happened after the Second World War, it turned out that his subject was Stalinism and the triumph of Stalinism, the victory of Stalinism by 1945, which gave him the subject matter for his two best known, perhaps his two great books, 1984 and Animal Farm, because at the heart of those books is Orwell's understanding that Stalinism, which is a monstrous, bastardised, cruel version of politics and of life, has at its heart, nonetheless, the thing that Orwell believed in, which was socialism. It was the monstrous, bastardised, warped, world-turned-upside-down version of socialism, and that gave him his subject matter. In 1941, he wasn't really thinking so much about Stalinism, though a bit. He was, like everyone else, thinking about the threat of fascism. And fascism wasn't Orwell's subject because he wasn't really interested in it in the sense he didn't have much to say about fascism. It was just the void. Stalinism was the, the warped version of something that Orwell didn't just understand but believed in. Fascism was just the enemy. There's a Manic Street Preachers song. It's about Orwell and the Spanish Civil War. And it has in it the line, if I can shoot rabbits then i can shoot fascists which i always thought came from orwell until i looked it up the other day and discovered it didn't but it still sums up in this sense an orwellian view of the world which is what you do with fascists as you fight them there's not that much to think about in 1941 orwell had to and in this essay he does briefly contemplate the possibility that fascism will win but he hasn't got anything to say about that the victory of fascism is just the void it is just the end. So his subject in this essay is not Stalinism, and it's not fascism. But it is in reaction to fascism. And the essay is about two questions in response to the state of the world in the winter of 1940 to 41, when Britain, and as I'll come on to what Orwell calls England, is fighting on and fighting alone, somewhat hopelessly, waiting for something to show up. The two questions are not, what happens if we lose? They are, first, why and how did England alone resist this? What is the explanation for the fact that England did not succumb to fascism? And I need to say here, and Orwell discusses it explicitly in the essay, he's aware that his readers will be annoyed by the way he conflates England and Britain. He is writing about England. His subject matter here is the English people. But in some contexts that doesn't really make sense. So for instance, he's also writing about the empire and the empire is not the English empire, it's the British empire. And he says in the essay, he knows that Scots and the Welsh will be intensely annoyed to be drawn into this analysis of a nation to which they both do and don't belong. But for his purposes, he wants to conflate England and Britain because it's the English character he's interested in. So I'm going to follow him in this, even though it doesn't always make sense for the reasons Orwell acknowledges. He's talking about why the English didn't succumb. What enabled them to resist? That's question one. Question two is how is this war going to be won? How is the the worst thing to be avoided, the void, the emptiness of a fascist triumph? or at least fascism remaining dominant and ascendant, going to be avoided. And the point of the essay is to say the answers to these two questions are different. So the reasons why England didn't succumb cannot be the answer to the question of how this war is going to be won. And The Lion and the Unicorn explains the difference between these two questions. It's an essay written in response to fascism. It's not about fascism. It's about what it means to be English. The answer to the first question, how and why have the English to this point managed to resist, takes up the first part of the essay. It's the bit of the essay that remains celebrated because it gives the answer in the terms of national character. There is something about being English that helps explain this. Orwell says at the start of the essay, that the dominant force at work in the modern world is nationalism. It's more powerful than religion. It's more powerful than ideology. No one and nowhere is immune to the pull of national identity as an organising political force. And that applies to the English too. The English are not a people who are immune to the pull of national identity. Like everyone and everywhere else, nationalism has its grip. But there is something different about English nationalism. It is unique. It is unlike nationalism anywhere else. It is more modest. It is not at all, Orwell thinks, bombastic. It is not aggrandizing. It is nothing like German nationalism, or even French nationalism, or Italian nationalism. It is quintessentially English. There's something private or inward about it. In that first part of the essay, he describes the characteristics of English life. And many people still love this, and they celebrate this essay because they think it's a evocative, sentimental hymn to Englishness. Orwell says, what, is, what makes England England? And his answer is, the beer is bitterer, the coins are heavier, the grass is greener, the advertisements are more blatant. The English have bad teeth, he says. The English love crossword puzzles. And many people who are English and some who aren't, Love all this. But the essay is not remotely sentimental. It's a complete misreading of it to think of it as a hymn of praise to the quirky, modest, eccentric character of English life. It's much, much more cool headed than that. And it's also true that none of this is explained in mystical terms as folklore or what in German would be called a kind of Geist, a spirit of the nation. Orwell's not interested in the spirit of the nation. He's not interested in what's passed down in unspoken ways from generation to generation. He thinks the explanation for this distinctive character of the English, resistant to bombast, often modest in outlook, curious, nosy, unusual, eccentric. The explanation is in history and geography. It's in material things. It's not in spirit. And I think he breaks the explanation down into three parts. What makes the English English is first, and this is geography and history, the English are an island people. Obviously, this is where England and Britain get confused because England is not an island. It has a land border with Scotland and a land border with Wales. But nonetheless, in outlook, the English are an island people. And why this matters in hard political terms is that it means that English power has primarily been projected through a navy and not through an army. And that really matters, Orwell thinks. Unlike continental Europe, where state power historically has primarily manifested in the form of an army, a standing army, an army present in the life of the nation, visible on the streets, called out to police cities and fascism for Orwell is a hyper-manifestation of this. In England, the main power of the state is outside the nation. It is literally outsourced. At some level, it is out of sight, out of mind. A naval people don't encounter the power of their state in a direct way because they don't see it And that explains what Orwell thinks is one of the distinctive features of English public life, which is that people do not respect or even fear armed force, the army. Through the 19th century through into the 20th century, the English used to mock the army. They had no respect for soldiers. They would jeer at them in the streets. He says in this essay, the army might like to march goose-stepping with jack boots on because soldiers tend to value that kind of thing. But the English would laugh at them. The English people would laugh at them. The English, in a sense, respect their navy because they don't really think about it, because they don't have to think about it. And they don't encounter the army as part of the life of the nation. Orwell has a phrase for England, he says, in contrast to the militarised police states of Europe. He says it is, a loose maritime democracy. And the key word there is maritime. A loose maritime democracy, he says, of strikes and slums and political parties. It has squalor in it. It has dissent in it. It has rigid social stratification in it. It has a version of democracy in it. What it does not have is direct state control through an armed force. Second, As a naval people, that is a people whose power is projected overseas through its navy, Britain, and I have to say Britain here, also acquired an empire. This is an imperial people. British power and British wealth, a lot of it, rests on its imperial possessions. England is still an industrial nation, a coal mining nation. Many of its people, its ordinary people, work in big industries. It's a dynamic nation in some ways. It's a prosperous nation relative to some others. But a lot of that wealth comes from its empire and it's channeled through what Orwell calls a rentier class who are effectively money laundering the spoils of empire, passing them back into the country and then taking them out again often. A financial class, a rentier class. The distinctive feature of the empire as Orwell understands it, in this case, is that it is also out of sight, out of mind. People don't think about it that much. Ordinary English people aren't particularly aware of the ways in which the empire underpins their way of life. It's not much discussed. Ordinary English people can be roused to a form of imperial patriotism sometimes, occasionally, but most of the time, there's a sort of indifference to it. The empire is both completely central to the English way of life and rarely discussed. That quintessential English characteristic of not talking about the thing, as we would now say, the elephant in the room, because it's a bit awkward doing the crossword puzzle instead. And that leads to the third distinctive feature of English life, as Orwell characterizes it, the thing that he says the English are world-famous for, he calls it their world-famous hypocrisy. The English are the hypocritical people, the people of double standards. The imperial power that controls a quarter of the globe but pretends it doesn't, that speaks the language of liberty and freedom while oppressing whole peoples, that exploits others and has a rigid, stratified class structure that keeps people in slums, and yet talks about fair play and decency as though that was the distinctive characteristic of English public life. For Orwell, English public life is primarily characterised by its obvious double standards. It's two things at once. It can't help being two things at once. It dresses up class hierarchy in the language of fair play, It dresses up empire in the language of freedom. It's projected overseas, this hypocrisy, the English pretending outside of England to be something that they're not. And it's projected internally, this hypocrisy, the idea that we are fair when all you have to do is look at the structures, the hierarchies, the exclusions, the snobberies of English life to know that we're not. Naval, imperial, hypocritical. How did the English manage to resist fascism? For Orwell, it's the third quality that saved the English. The English were saved by their hypocrisy. That's part of what makes this such an extraordinary and extraordinarily interesting essay. Hypocrisy is our saving grace. Because whatever else you might say about hypocrisy, and however much people might despise it and people do on the whole hate discovering double standards in others, there are at least two standards at work. It's not transparent wickedness. It's not blatant cruelty. It's not open oppression, all of which could be used to describe fascism. There are many, many things to be said about fascism, but accusing fascist politicians of hypocrisy is pointless. Fascism is open about its oppression. The English state and the English social and political system tried to conceal it. And in trying to conceal it, it had to maintain certain standards that couldn't be abdicated. There is an old line that says, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, which means that in the end, the hypocrite has sometimes at least to pretend to be good. One of Orwell's lines about England, in The Lion and the Unicorn, is that public life in England has not reached the pitch of disintegration at which humbug can be dropped. Humbug here is a virtue, not a vice, because you have at least to pretend that you are still trying to do the right thing. Orwell also says in this essay, an illusion can become a half-truth. A mask can alter the expression of a face. One of the aphorisms for which he is still well known is Orwell's line that At 50, everyone has the face he deserves. Which is sometimes taken to mean, you know, if you live a dissolute, wicked life, by the time you're 50, it'll show in your face. But I think what it really means is that we all wear a mask. We're all hypocrites. We all put on a performance. By the time you're 50, the mask is you. You've chosen your mask. The mask of English public life is that the English are a decent people. In many ways, the English are not a decent people. Certainly, their ruling class are not decent people, Orwell thought. He thought they were fools and they were charlatans. But nonetheless, that pretense was one of the things that saved the English, because under those conditions, fascism is impossible. And in this essay, Orwell explains why appeasement finally turned not into surrender, but into resistance. And his answer, it sounds too simplistic to be true, and in many ways it probably is, but it has some truth in it, some half-truth in it. His answer is the barrier in the end was hypocrisy. The appeasers couldn't, as he puts it, sell the country to the fascists, much as he suspects many of them would have liked to. And here he's probably thinking less of Chamberlain and more of Halifax, the man who could have been prime minister when Chamberlain fell, but in the end the Conservative Party, and at some level, the country, chose Churchill instead, chose a man who at least believed in the possibility of victory, rather than taking for granted the ultimate certainty of defeat. But what saved the country from being sold in the way that Orwell believed other countries had been sold out to fascism? was this belief in keeping up appearances, the out of sight, out of mind, double standard, hypocritical quality of the English, that stops people from doing the wickedest things? Hypocrisy saved the nation. That's the answer to question one. So then what's the answer to question two? And this really is the point of Orwell's essay. And this is what the second part of it elaborates, which is not where you get the bits that people like. Whimsical hymns of praise to the English countryside. It's where you get hard nosed socialism. Orwell insists that hypocrisy will only take you so far. It'll only stop you from doing the worst thing. It's not enough to fight and win a war against a ruthless, brutal, determined enemy. Because with that hypocrisy, Orwell thought, also went the qualities of the English ruling class, which he characterized as bravery. So in the spirit of doing the right thing, of keeping up appearances, of not letting the side down, Orwell notes that the British ruling classes are perfectly happy to die on the battlefield. Bravery, stupidity, complacency, incompetence, all of these things are consistent with a hypocritical public life because no one ever really faces facts. The elephant in the room is not addressed. Everyone pretends to be something that they're not. And this will take you to the point where you won't sell the country out, but it won't take you any further than that. And Orwell's reading of the history of England, of Britain, of the British Empire, is that incompetence rises under this kind of system. Terrible mistakes are made. And finally, the English people were facing a war in which that just won't cut it anymore. You can't muddle your way through a war against fascism. You can't win it by refusing to face facts. Hypocrisy has to be replaced by something else. He says of the appeasers, who then become the resistors, the Chamberlains, the Halifaxes, they have nothing to offer. They have no vision of what this war is being fought for beyond keeping up appearances. You can't take the world back to the place they want to take it back to, which Orwell identifies as 1933. You have to have some understanding of how you will take the country forward. And they can't do it. You have to move beyond that class to a new set of people to rule the nation. The first step in that, but only the first step, is the move from Chamberlain to Churchill. From half-heartedness to full-blown resistance. But that's all Churchill is. For Orwell. He still embodies the ruling class. He's not stupid. He's certainly brave. But he embodies that idea that what this is, is the hyperbolic version of resistance. And it's not enough. All that is good for is hanging on. For this nation, the English nation, to defeat this monstrous creed, fascism, Orwell thinks would take a much higher level of competence and organisation. So something that has to shift, and it's one of his themes, not just in this essay, but throughout his writing, and it's one of the less attractive parts of Orwell. He's often criticised for this. There's a contempt in Orwell for his fellow intellectuals, and he writes about them in terms that are often misogynistic or homophobic. He thinks that the English intellectual classes are effeminate. He calls them pansies. What he means by that is they're not patriots. They have rejected the idea that what matters if you live in a nation is to defend it and to defend its values. He understands why they can't. Anyone who is intelligent, confronted with the blimpishness of English public life, will recoil from it. It is so hypocritical. And what intellectuals like is clarity and integrity and ideas that stack up. They like to make sense of things. And English intellectuals, or well thought, confronted with this kind of highly stratified social structure based on class and prejudice and exclusion, but with its brute force always hidden, recoil from it and criticise it and say they want to have nothing to do with it and either throw in their lot with Stalin or one or two of them with Hitler, or just talk about some future order where all of this will be swept away, but do nothing to achieve that. For this war to be won, Orwell says, the intellectuals have to be brought back into the fold of patriotism. That is, patriotism has to be reconciled with intelligence rather than being stuck with stupidity. And for that to happen, you need a much, much better organised state. The English state, the British state, is essentially amateurish, as Orwell sees it, It's an upper-class project. It's an aristocratic project still. It has a democracy in it, this loose maritime democracy based on naval power. But it is not, to use a, a later word, an anachronistic term, it is not meritocratic. It doesn't seek out people of talent to run things. But you cannot fight a war, a total war like this war, without stripping away all of that prejudice and looking for the people who can make the system, the machinery, the machinery of government, of war, work. The army, Orwell thought, was still, in 1941, in the grip of the stupid people. But he had much greater hopes, particularly for the Air Force, a new branch of British power, where meritocracy was built into it, because... You had to hire the people who knew how to fly the planes, how to build the planes, how to mend the planes. You couldn't just recruit them from the English public schools. The Navy, too, he thought was increasingly meritocratic, not the army. But the army would have to become meritocratic, too, because in the end, this was going to be a war that would have to be won on the land as well as on the sea and in the air. But ultimately, he says, the only thing that will save the English people in such a way that they can do more than resist, they can win, is socialism. Democratic socialism. The English state, the British state, will have to become a socialist state because, under these conditions of total war, that level of organization, of integration of the economy, of co option of the working people of the nation into a political system that they can openly believe in rather than simply being roused to occasional moments of patriotic fervour requires socialism. And so As all understood it, the state had embarked on a path that moved from Chamberlain to Churchill, but couldn't possibly stop there. And for the war to be won, it had to go beyond Churchill to someone or something else, a socialist government. It would be, he hoped, democratic, and he assumed it would still be recognisably English. This would still be the English version of democratic socialism. So it would be a little bit hypocritical. It would have its double standards. It would still be trying to keep up appearances and fair play. In one of the more chilling lines in the essay, he says of this thing he thinks has to come if the war is to be won. Under English democratic socialism, we will still shoot the traitors, but we will give them a genuinely fair trial. It won't be a show trial. Show trials are not hypocritical. Show trials are blatant displays of transparent force because they are nothing but lies. Stalinist show trials are lies. Orwell had a vision of an English socialist state in which the traitors would be shot after a fair trial. And there would still be the use of the power of the state to co-opt the nation in the state's projects, but he thought there would also be freedom of speech and freedom of expression coercion and freedom would go together. These would be the double standards of the English state because they are in many ways the double standards of modern political life. But it would be socialist and it would have to be socialist. Centrally organised, centrally run, involving the workers, as Orwell saw it, hoped, meritocratic. You can't win a war like the war against fascism by running the state like the English had run theirs for the past hundred years. And Orwell was, I want to say, half right. I don't think it's even half right. But he wasn't completely wrong. That progression did happen. The sequence of English political life does go. Chamberlain, Churchill, Attlee. And the government that came after the Churchill government, that didn't win the war, but was part of the victory, was a version of a socialist government, not the kind I think that Orwell had in mind quite, but more socialist than anything the British state had ever seen. And in that progression from Chamberlain to Churchill to Attlee, many of the class structures of English life were swept away. The British state did become, in some ways, more meritocratic. It certainly became much, much more centrally organized. Orwell was by no means alone in thinking that the Second World War had changed the conditions of democratic politics, because the war had required so much centralized state control that there was no going back. And he was right about that. Some people lamented it. Hayek, writing at the same time, thought this was the beginning of the end, that the inevitable triumph of a form of socialism after the war would be the destruction of freedom. The Frankfurt School, the members of the Frankfurt School, who left Germany, fled Germany to get away from Hitler, relocated to the United States, and noted that the United States was acquiring not quite fascistic or Stalinist qualities, But that level of centralised state control through the federal government that meant that there was a family resemblance now between all of the major states of the world, that the war had done this to them, it had created overlapping conditions of centralised control, of authority, of coercion. Orwell's take on that is that it had to be channeled in the direction of democratic socialism. And to some extent, from 1945 to 1950, 51, in the case of the British state and the English people, it was. And many of the institutions of English public life were upended during that period. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. It's also true that one of the things that all identified also came to pass. In The Lion and the Unicorn, and I don't think he's solely thinking of the English here, but he thinks this is a distinctively English characteristic. He notes in 1941, thinking about the previous decade, say, that one of the changes in English social life was the increasing democratisation of culture. The rich and the poor who are so divided by class and so stratified by history, Nonetheless, under conditions of modern consumer leisure are starting to overlap in their experiences of radio and film and, as Orwell says, the books they read, which would not have been true 50 years earlier or 100 years earlier. There, there were hints of it earlier. There's a little bit of cultural democratization in the age of Dickens, but it's, it's mass media leisure that makes the difference, radio and film. And also in another completely memorable phrase from this essay, what Orwell calls the naked democracy of the swimming pool, meaning the Lido, the place where people go to swim. The swimming pool was where class divisions fell away. There might be a fast lane, a medium lane, a slow lane, but there's not an upper class lane, a middle class lane, and a working class lane. And this is Orwell thinks distinctively English in the United States, he would be very well aware swimming pools are socially stratified. People are included and people are excluded on the basis of race. The English loose maritime democracy is also the naked democracy of the swimming pool. And that trend that Orwell identified did accelerate during and after the war. England did become a less socially stratified nation, because of some of the ways in which the classes were joined, were conjoined in shared leisure and cultural activities. But he's not even half right, really. In most respects, what Orwell says in The Lion and the Unicorn did not come to pass. And the predictions that he made, the certainty in a very Orwellian way with which he expressed them, was greatly overdone. First, it didn't happen during the war. So Orwell's assumption in early 1941, is this will have to take place under wartime conditions, the shift to socialism, so that the war can be won. Because there is no other way for the English to defeat fascism. And he's still assuming at this point that the English, the British, will have to defeat fascism. He says in this essay, we now at least have dropped the illusion that some people might have had in the early days of the war, that ultimately, the Russians will do our fighting for us. February 1941, he thinks that is now clearly an illusion, but it wasn't an illusion. In the end, it was the thing that had to come to pass for the war to be won. Not that the Russians would do the fighting for the English, but the Russians would do an awful lot of the fighting alongside the English, along with the Americans. The English state did not reform itself to win the war. The English state hung on, the British state, hung on long enough to be joined in the war by the people who could win it. And it was only when the war ended that the shift happened, that the victorious Churchill was ejected in a democratic election and replaced by Attlee. That's not what Orwell had in mind. The transformation was a transformation within the terms of loose maritime democracy. It wasn't the shift that he thought the war would necessarily bring in its wake which is a permanent move from one way of organising a state to another. He also assumes that as part of that shift, certain institutions would simply have to go. Two in particular, he just takes for granted that the war cannot be won while these two institutions still maintain their grip over English public life. One of them is the House of Lords. He says of this socialist government that he imagines will have to come in sooner rather than later so that the war can be won, that it probably won't abolish the monarchy. So in that way, it'll still be distinctively Englishly hypocritical. A socialist monarchical government, what the hell is that? But of course, obviously, it goes without saying. It will have to abolish the House of Lords. And the second great English institution or set of institutions that will have to be abolished are the public schools, what the English call the public schools, which are really the private schools, another classic piece of English humbug. Orwell says in The Lion and the Unicorn that it may be true that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, but, he says, every other war has nearly been lost there, starting in the 50s. And one of the extraordinary things about reading an essay published in 1941 is that he talks about the 50s, he calls them the 50s, And he means the 1850s, starting with the Crimean War and ever since. Each war that this hypocritical people undertake to start with is a disaster because the incompetents are in charge and the incompetents are the products of its grotesquely stratified public school system. They aren't there on merit. They're there because of who they know. And the only way wars are ultimately won is to get rid of that lot and to replace them with people who know what they're doing. And in the previous wars, it didn't require the complete reform of the institutions of English life. It was possible still somehow to fudge it, but not, he thinks, as seen from 1941, not in the war that the English people were currently undertaking, the war against fascism. The fudge is no longer possible. The non-hypocritical nature of fascism means that simply responding to it with more humbug won't do it those schools have to go. And if they don't go, then democratic socialism is impossible, he thought. Well, they didn't go, nor did the House of Lords. The Attlee government could have abolished the public schools, could have made it impossible for them to continue to function. It certainly could have abolished the House of Lords. The Attlee government had a thumping majority in parliament. And there were many, many things it could have done. But like all governments, under democratic conditions, it had to prioritise, and it had, in its own mind, more important things to do. The creation of the National Health Service, the establishment of NATO, trying to make sure that Britain had a nuclear weapon. The House of Lords survived. The Great Public school survived. It needs to be remembered that Attlee was also a product of one of those schools. Haleybury, as was Orwell, who went to Eton. Full disclosure, as did I those schools are still with us. And when Orwell says that it is the characteristic of English life that all the wars are nearly lost because the Etonians are still in charge, to have lived through English public and political life for the last decade is to realise that nothing has really changed. If, I don't want to call it a war, but if the great Brexit battles are part of this long history of what happens when the English people try to assert themselves and try to create for themselves a new destiny, it was still left in the hands of Etonian incompetence. And we are now where we are. And the third thing I think that Orwell missed was, he thought that the naked democracy of the swimming pool was part of a coherent trend towards the equalization and democratization of political life, that as cultural forces break down class divisions, that will feed back into politics. And in some ways, that's part of a trend that is now inexorable towards a more equal nation, and therefore, by definition, a more socialist nation. But you could argue the opposite happened, and continues to happen, Leisure, culture is always being democratised by the forces of modern mass consumption. This is no longer maybe the naked swimming pool democracy, but it's the naked Netflix democracy. Whatever it is that forces people from different backgrounds and different classes and with different experiences and expectations of life into the same pool of experience is being accelerated by modern technology, by modern capitalism. There's more and more of it, but it doesn't feed into political institutions. In a way, you could say, it's a distraction. It's a displacement activity. The House of Lords is still here. The public schools are still here. Atlee socialism did not lead to the entrenchment of democratic socialism in the British state. After the sequence, Chamberlain, Churchill, Atlee, comes Churchill again. And more hypocrisy, because Churchill and the Conservative Party embrace the half-and-half socialist reforms of the Attlee government. And there's a new humbug settlement in British public life in the loose maritime democracy and the naked democracy of the swimming pool. And on it goes. It's a continuation of the story that Orwell describes. It's not a rejection of it. There isn't that clean break. During the war, the clean break doesn't happen. After the war, there is a break, but it's not a clean break, because it's a twist or turn in the long story of electoral democracy, the world of the slums and the strikes and political parties that Orwell recognised all too well. And for each twist, there is another twist. And for each turn, there is another turn. It is more a story of continuation than of fundamental and permanent change. And yet as Orwell would certainly acknowledge after the war. There were worse things. This is still recognisably the humbug version of democratic politics, the English version, the quintessential English version, double standards and hypocrisy, doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, doing the right thing just to keep up appearances, muddling along, muddling through. What's worse than that? are the things that Orwell describes in the two books that made him George Orwell, world historical figure. Because whatever else you might want to say about what is described in Animal Farm and in 1984, it is the antithesis of hypocrisy. A world in which the lies are so blatant that it can say on the government buildings, war is peace, is not a hypocritical world. It is a lying world. It is an empty world. It is the void. It is, to use a phrase, that comes from the lion and the unicorn and becomes the defining image of 1984, a boot stamping on the human face forever. That's, in 1941, Orwell's image of fascism. It becomes his image of Stalinism. In Animal Farm, it's best-known line: All animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to be good. There's no pretense there. It's just a lie. It is an untruth dressed up as a truth. That's the end of hypocrisy, and that's the beginning of the end of everything. There are worse things, is Orwell's theme, than English humbug, much as he hoped in 1941 that finally, finally, It would be possible for England to be free of it, at least to the extent that it could grasp its political destiny, which was to become a democratic socialist nation. It didn't happen. The humbug continued. But it's also in keeping, not just with the spirit of that essay, what happened, but really with Orwell himself, because Orwell was quintessentially English. It's hard to think of a more English writer than Orwell in Orwell's own terms partly because he was himself a man of double standards, of humbug, of hypocrisy. He was the Etonian who spent part of his life pretending to be a tramp. He was the passionate anti-imperialist who also served as a Burmese imperial policeman. He was the intellectual who loathed intellectuals. Orwell is the thing that he describes. And his attitude to Englishness is the thing that he described. So some people read The Lion and the Unicorn and they read it as a hymn of praise to the English people. And that's clearly wrong. And yet you can see why, because there's a kind of love there. There's a reverence. Something about being English for Orwell is magical. And at the same time, in the same essay, he is quite clearly contemptuous of it there are many aspects of the English that he loathes. He can't bear it. And like everyone, he can't really bear the hypocrisy at the same time as recognising that it was briefly the saving grace of the English people. Orwell worships and despises the characteristics in the English that he exemplifies. It's hard to be more double standards than that. But he still thinks, I am sure, and I think he would have thought to the end of his life and beyond, had he seen what was coming, that there are worse things than having double standards. He would no doubt be baffled and probably horrified to know that the Etonians are still running the country and losing the wars in the second and third decade of the 21st century. It would be an astonishing thought for George Orwell. But he would also have to recognise the continuity. One of the things that he says in The Lion and the Unicorn is, what is the answer to the question of what the England of 1940, as he puts it, has in common with the England of 1840? And his answer is nothing. I mean, these are two completely different nations. They've been transformed in all the ways that modernity transforms everything. Take someone from 1940 and put them back into 1840, and they would be back in a completely alien world, except they would also recognise it's the same country, that there would be a continuity there despite all of the differences. And the comparison he makes is with an old person thinking about the relationship of that person's life to what they were when they were young. Someone in their 70s thinking about, what do I have in common with what I was when I was 18? And the answer is both nothing, and I am clearly the same person. I recognise myself in the younger person. The younger person is clearly an earlier version of the person I was to become. At 50, everyone has the mask he deserves. What's true of an individual, Orwell says, is true of a nation. The England of 1940 is completely different from the England of 1840, but it's recognisably the same country. And I think Orwell, if he saw the world now, would look at the England of 2023 and see that it was completely different from the England of 1941. Completely different and recognisably the same country. To find out more about this podcast, do please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. Day six, halfway through the 12 Days of Christmas is tomorrow, and I'm going to be talking about Simone Weil on human personality.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag, say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.